Welcome to Women's HealthCast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'll be exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN. Dr. Kara King is a leader in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery in the UW Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She's also a leader in another very important arena. Dr. King is developing a curriculum to help medical students and especially residents who are training in our department to become skilled providers of care for transgender and gender nonconforming patients. When I learned about her curriculum project, over Twitter no less, I could not wait to learn more. So we are joined today by Kara King. Uh, Dr. Kara King is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon in the UW Department of OBGYN's Division of Gynecology and Gynecologic Subspecialties. And um, I really wanted to talk to you uh, basically because of some low-key Twitter stalking. Uh, I saw something you posted about developing a curriculum specifically for uh, transgender patient care, and I'm very, very intrigued. I want to learn more about that. But first... um, want to learn a little bit about you. So I mentioned you are a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon. Um, tell me what that means. A minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon typically goes through four years of obstetrics and gynecology residency, and then it's followed by a two- to three-year fellowship in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And within those two to three years, it's typically surgically focused. And within those um, two to three years, we often um, focus on complex pelvic pathology, including fibroids, and we also deal with more complex patients, so patients who have had more pelvic surgeries um, or more comorbidities, such as morbid obesity or transplants or things like that. And you kind of are a specialist in a lot of very interesting techniques as well, like robotic surgery and laparoscopic surgery, right? Yeah. So my practice right now is mostly focused in conventional straight stick laparoscopy. So that's my preferred method. But you're exactly right in that some MIGS trained physicians prefer the robot. I think it's just a different tool to get the job done. So my my main goal is to offer patients a minimally invasive approach. And then how you do that is personal preference. Why did you want to pursue this specialty? Yeah, so I kind of had a backwards approach to getting to where I am today. So in my undergraduate years, I was actually a grossing tech in a pathology lab. And so what that means is that I received all the specimens that were sent down from the operating room and cut them up and made slides for the pathologist to read. And the pelvic gynecologic specimens I thought were the most intriguing. So big anexal masses, big fibroids, big endometriomas. And I was always curious on where these specimens were coming from. And there was a gynecologic oncologist who would typically come down and watch me make my frozen sections. And so one day I, I asked him if he would mind if I went to the operating room and saw where these were coming from. And I'm the only physician in my family. I was so naive when I think back to where I was then. But I ended up going down to the operating room with him and saw what he was doing to get these specimens out. And I was hooked. I was like, I can do this. Like, this could be my life. This is amazing. And so from that point forward, I knew that I wanted to be a subspecialist surgeon. And I played around with the idea of gynecologic oncology versus minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And what it came down to is that I I knew I wanted to be a high-volume surgeon. It's been shown that high-volume surgeons have better outcomes, so I knew I wanted to be very busy in what I did. And I fell in love with deeply infiltrating endometriosis, bowel involvement, renal involvement, bladder involvement, and I also loved big fibroids. And 
And the thought of being able to get these big masses out of these really small incisions when no one else thought could be done um, was really exciting for me. And I also didn't want to lose my my transgender health population. And so focusing on MIGS and um, a benign pathology world was, was definitely the right fit. I think it's very funny that your sort of first... OR experience or first visual experience made you confident that's what you wanted to do because I've watched some of your <laughs> surgical training videos and that made me very yeah. confident that journalism was the right <laughs> choice for me. <laughs> I know. Think in this role. We all good at our specific niche, right? So I really wanted to talk to you um, again because I was slightly uh, Twitter stalking as I do with all of our physicians. Just a heads up, you guys. <laughs> I saw a tweet that you posted. You linked to an article from the National Geographic that was about transgender patients' experiences in the emergency room and how those medical interactions can be really fraught and um, uncomfortable. And what you mentioned is that you were specifically in our department then creating a resident curriculum focused on transgender health care. And I thought that's amazing and I want to know more. So um, why did you decide to develop this curriculum? Yeah, Great question, and I'm happy you're stalking me. Thank you. And uh, that article that you're referencing is really a humbling and powerful account of a transgender patient's experience in the emergency room and all the fears that go along with that. And, you know, many transgender patients, they've reported discrimination and insensitivity when seeking their medical care. And it's just, it's terrible to see how much discrimination that these patients are experiencing on an everyday account in the healthcare setting. And in this specific article, it does state that around 70% of transgender, as well as gender non-conforming individuals, have faced some serious discrimination when they've gone to their physician. And to me, that just, it blows my mind that in a place that we should be supportive um, and inclusive, that patients are fearful to come and see us. And so with this, I've known that action needs to be taken to close this knowledge gap. And I'm a firm believer that doing nothing when it comes to transgender care, it's not a neutral position. By doing nothing, it's actually having really serious harmful consequences for this patient population. And I really think this knowledge gap exists secondary to insufficient education and exposure. And it's been shown that 33% of medical schools out there offer zero hours of dedicated time to LGBTQ health. And to me, that is just a number that should not exist in today's education. It's really important to understand that improving health care for sexual and gender minority patients is not only improving um, care for the specific population, but it's really about improving care for all individuals. So even though, you know, right now I'm focusing on the transgender health, it's really about creating an inclusive environment for everybody that walks into our clinic or into our emergency room or operating room. And so it was really my hope that by creating this transgender health curriculum, it'll help provide medical students, residents, and other faculty um, the skills that they need to be true advocates for their patients. And not only and not have a neutral position, but actually, you know, be, be knowledgeable enough and strong enough to actually sit at the table and make a difference. So what does the curriculum include? What kind of um, information and lessons are you going to cover? Yeah. So right now, I will be honest, we're really in this infancy stages. So, but I will say that um, start, we have, you know, we have to start from somewhere, and I'm really proud from where we're starting right now. And the fact that we're even integrating this curriculum, it really shows the institutional climate here at UW and within the OBGYN department. You know, Dr. Laurel Rice, Dr. Ellen Hartenbach, they've been in full support of me. And um, I think that, again, this really shows the values that UW has um, at its core. So... Within this curriculum, I did implement uh, a lecture within the medical students interim prep course. So I've started um, creating small little lectures here and there for the medical students themselves. At the resident level, though, this is really where I focus my attention thus far. 
And so there is um, a MIGS rotation, a minimally invasive UN surgery rotation that the residents go through. All residents do typically four to eight week rotations in different subspecialties, and my specific rotation is four weeks. And my goal has been to really integrate transgender health throughout the rotation. So not presented as a standalone topic, but actually understand that the spectrum of patients that um, these residents and future docs will see have unique aspects of care in, in, in all genres, so not just specifically in the MIG subspecialty. And I really try to pay special attention to sensitivity in the language as well as their physical exam. And I've seen that even with residents, they have really great intentions in, in being respectful for the patients, but even um, sometimes with that intent, language can come off as being insensitive. So um, helping residents understand how their words are impacting um, this really unique population I think has been important. Furthermore, I've tried to serve as a role model for my learner in prioritizing mindedness and really a commitment to lifelong learning. You know, I am by no means, you know, an expert in this, and I absolutely make mistakes in how I word specific questions during my history, and I'll say something and be like, oh my goodness, I could have worded that so much better than I did. But I think as long as you're coming from a place of good intention and humility, um, the patient will understand. And so in regard to the resident didactics and simulation, I'm really proud of a recent didactic and simulation session that we recently held for our residents. And we did this in collaboration with the medical school as well as the outreach LGBT center here, right here in Madison. And so what we did was we hosted a four-hour session that included a presentation regarding definitions and um, history of transgender health and different social experiences. And then the outreach center was kind enough to assist us finding um, eight volunteers, which blew my mind that there was that many individuals that were willing to join us. And some of those volunteers served on a panel, and they talked about their different medical experiences, um, different personal transition stories, and um, again, different experiences they had in the emergency room versus clinical office versus different um, gender-confirming surgeries. And then we had the volunteers serve as simulated patients with mock patient interviews. Uh, we took different transgender volunteers or gender non-conforming volunteers as well, paired them up with residents and had them do mock interviews with different um, patient concerns or complaints. And I think this was really, really powerful because it allowed a one-on-one -on -one experience with this volunteer. And then after that, the volunteer was able to give feedback to each resident on how they felt during the questions and how they could have worded things better. And then the residents also had the opportunity to ask questions with these volunteers as well. And so I think it really made the residents understand that these these, these patients are just like us. It's just like you and me. And treating these patients um, like fellow human beings is really at its core what it comes down to being important. You talked a lot about language in particular. So, yeah. Um, making sure that you get the terminology right, yeah. you know how to ask questions. What were some of the most important um, terms and definitions and things that you had to learn to start to feel more comfortable um, and more confident that you were interacting with your patients in a way that was going to be positive for kind of everybody involved? Yeah. So there's definitely a few definitions that I think are important that you just really understand inside and out and then expand off of that. So to keep it simple, I think the main definitions that people should know when interacting with this population would be number one is sex. And the definition of that is you, uh, basically your assignment at birth. So when I talk to my patients, my one of the first questions that I ask is, what assignment were you given at birth? And, and that's, that's, that's a definition of their biological sex. The next definition I think that's really important is gender ID. And so with gender ID, this is the inherent sense of being male or female. And this has nothing to do with your biological sex. And so I think understanding that gender ID is not your biological sex, and also gender ID is not necessarily someone's sexual orientation. 
right? And so sexual orientation is someone's preference for sexual intimacy. Someone explained it to me this way, and it's really resonated with me, in that gender identity is who you go to bed as, while sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. To me, that makes sense. Yeah, right? it's very easy to remember. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and so those are the main like hardcore definitions that I think are just really important to understand and differentiate when you're when you're talking with this population. And then gender dysphoria. So gender, gender dysphoria is when there's discomfort or or distress that's caused by a discrepancy between a person's gender ID meaning how they sense themselves and their biological sex. And so um, this is one reason why I see a lot of my patients is when people have this um, gender dysphoria and are interested in different types of um, transitions or gender-confirming surgeries. The next part of the definitions that I think is really important is not necessarily definition, but just understanding the, the importance of pronouns. And so... Um, the idea of a pronoun to somebody who isn't really in this may sound really, you know, not, not very important, but it can actually change a, a transgender patient's experience completely in your office. And so what I mean by that is by asking your patient what pronoun he or she um, or they okay. or Z. Z. Yeah, or exactly. Yeah. Or Z, yeah, exactly. What yeah. pronoun they prefer. And so I think a really good way to do it is when you introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Kara King. Um, I prefer she, her hers? What What is your preferred pronoun? And I think just by opening up in that you're receptive to different types of pronouns is, is really important. And just never assuming. So just never assuming that somebody is expecting a specific pronoun, but having the respect and the courtesy and the knowledge to actually ask, I think can go a really long ways in making a really positive patient interaction. Are there any kind of um, unique healthcare issues that the transgender patient population experiences um, beyond uh, sort of the very unique medical issues of, like, gender-affirming surgeries. But I'm thinking, like, are there health disparities between that population and a cisgendered population? Which maybe we should go back and define cisgendered, since I just threw that in there very casually. But my understanding is that a cisgender is a person um, whose gender identity or gender expression aligns with the sex they were assigned at birth. How did I do? I am so proud of you. You nailed it. That's exactly correct. Yeah, nicely done. Absolutely. I think it's really important to identify these risk factors and screen for for these differences in the transgender population. These individuals experience um, significant health disparities and inequalities, and because of that, have a much higher risk um, of of um, of other social as well as mental medical issues. So. Uh, there was a report in JAMA just this past year in 2017 that showed that transgender adults are more likely to report depression. They're more likely to be uninsured, um, and they oftentimes forgo needed care due to cost. And so because of this, they're not getting any of their preventative care. And so because of this, there's more issues with substance abuse and mental health concerns. There's increased risk of suicide, um, as well as infections and different chronic diseases. And then just touching upon um, some of the medical things with hormone therapy and specific gender-confirming surgeries, there's also an increased risk of blood clots in some of these patients, increased risk of osteoporosis, different metabolic concerns. And so I think fully understanding not only, just like you said, the medical things that can happen, but also the social, the social issues that this, these patients can have is really pivotal in providing optimal care. You mentioned a little bit earlier about, okay, pronouns, um, mm-hmm. and getting the right pronouns goes a long way to 
being welcoming even, Mm -hmm. making someone feel comfortable and safe in this space. And I'm sure I know there are many, many barriers to um, good healthcare access. And this is just one that I, I think is probably pretty common is feeling comfortable, safe, welcomed in a hospital or a clinic space. Um, So what do you think uh, doctors, APPs, nurses, administrative staff, pretty much everyone from like door to exam room, everyone along the line can do to help build these welcoming, inclusive, and safe clinical environments? Yeah, I love this question. And I think it's really important that, just like you said, not only the physician, but everybody in the clinic from the time they walk in the door until the time they leave is um, is educated on how to make these patients' experiences optimized. And when these patients come to, the, come to their physician, they're already very oftentimes um, nervous and intimidated and feeling vulnerable. And so I think there are specific action items that we can do to help decrease these uncomfortable feelings. And so I think a couple action items that we can do is, number one, just starting with the patient intake forms, right? And so um, coming from the OBGYN perspective, a lot of our forms will have women's health or something, you know, going towards the female or or woman um, population. I think by making these medical forms um, more neutral and transgender inclusive is one step that shouldn't be too difficult that would really make these patients a lot more comfortable. Another thing that we can think about are the bathrooms, right? So working towards making gender neutral and unisex bathrooms, I think, can go a long way. Also, in your waiting room, if you can have some kind of symbol of inclusion, and there's different different ideas out there. It could include um, maybe safe zone signs or different flags that could show that you're inclusive. You know, during my recent didactic session, one of my volunteers gave me a really, really great suggestion. So something as simple as having your pronouns lift, listed on your badge. So she, her, hers, if that's your preferred p- pronoun. I think by just having that displayed just shows that you are being sensitive to the fact that patients should have um, the power to, to um, request whatever pronouns make them feel most comfortable in that patient interaction. You work in obstetrics and gynecology, most of the people I talk to. Um, How do OBGYNs most commonly work with transgender patients? Yeah, there's a lot of ways that OBGYNs can interact with transgender patients. I think, first of all, there's just healthcare maintenance, so annual physical exams. And because of this, it's really important for us to understand what pelvic organs have been taken out or left in, and also what hormones your patient may be taking. And so the way we tailor our physical exams are really um, based on what organs are there. So if there's a cervix, then we need to do usually pap cytologies, and if they have ovaries, then we need to do an exam to assess for ovarian cancer. Um, If there's breast tissue, then we recommend um, breast exams. And we also, for annual exams, we'll look at metabolic screening. So for patients who are on testosterone, then we worry about different types of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, different hepatic functions. And so that's one reason why transgender patients may see us. And then in my world, transgender patients can come to us for different surgical options, so different types of gender-confirming surgeries. So in my world, I typically do um, or or discuss with my patients bottom surgery, and that can include um, hysterectomy, which means taking out the uterus, plus or minus the cervix, plus or minus the ovaries and tubes. So there's a lot of different options on what kind of surgeries these patients can have. 
And I, I do want to say that it is really important that, from a surgeon standpoint, that we are more than just a technician. And so I think it's really important to understand that not only am I able to remove these organs, but you should also really um, be able to talk about pros and cons of taking or leaving the ovaries or taking and leaving the cervix. You know, I see a lot of patients come in to talk about surgery and think that there's only one surgery, right? Uterus, cervix, tubes, ovaries, everything out. And that's not necessarily the best fit for everybody. So I think really understanding long-term goals. So um, if your patient desires to carry um, his or her own pregnancy, or if in the future they don't desire to carry a pregnancy but donate eggs um, and have a genetically, um, a genetically related infant, um, then those are important questions that need to come up. Uh, transgender patients may also come to you for different hormone options, including hormonal initiation or maintenance of their hormones. Outside of this, providers also play a really important role in serving uh, as an interface between the patients um, and the insurance carriers. So this can be a really complex um, relationship, and I think um, even if the physicians don't know how to navigate it themselves, they should have good resources and where to direct the patients and how to navigate that. So what kinds of special skills or competencies do um, OBGYNs need to take better care of their transgender patients? Yeah, so I think beyond formal education, to really improve the health of transgender patients, we, it also requires a lot of personal reflection on our point, on, on our side, to just ensure that our unconscious bias isn't impacting our patient interviews um, and our patient care. And it's also really important that we don't perpetuate these barriers to care that these patients have probably experienced um, for part or all of their lives. And I think it's also, like I stated earlier, or not, um, it's really important that we do not assume. So again, when you when you meet somebody for the first time, don't assume that you understand their gender identity or don't assume that you know exactly their sexual orientation. And um, you should not base this on appearance, base it on their pronoun, base it on their name. You really should take the time um, to ask your patients these direct questions and also understand that the answer that you receive today may not be where they are in a year from now. So understanding that gender can be fluid, sexual orientation can be fluid, things can change from day to day, from year to year. And so understanding that these questions should come up again and being open to the, the answer shifting is really, really important. I also think it's important for faculty to serve as role models um, for their learners and for fellow faculty, and really role models in humility and open-mindedness and really commitment to lifelong learning in that we are always trying to learn from each other and learn from our patients, and we're going to make mistakes, and that's okay to make mistakes. As, again, as long as it's coming from a really you know, good and thoughtful place, um, that's okay. UW Health has a specialized gender services program. It looks like there are um, a lot of providers who participate in it, and they cover kind of a lot of ground across uh, lots of different specialties and subspecialties. So do you know why did UW Health create this program? Yeah, I am so excited about this program. I think this is changing healthcare for not just this area, but really region-wide. Um, Dr. Katie Gast has been a pivotal catalyst in implementing these forward advancements, and she is just a phenomenal physician, a phenomenal person, and um, she's been a true advocate for these patients. So this new gender services program, it's uh, interprofessional collaboration, and just like you said, it includes many departments here at UW. Just to name a few, it includes us, obviously, OBGYN, as well as family medicine, plastics, endocrinology, internal medicine, 
voice therapy and neurology. And so by having everybody in, in one network, it makes it so much easier for the patients to um, get the multidimensional care that they really deserve. And UW Health has been committed to be a national leader within this diversity um, and inclusion, and we're actually designated a leader in LGBTQ healthcare equality, and we were just um, des- designated this by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, so it's something that we should definitely be proud of. So why did you want to be one of the listed providers in this network? So, yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled and honored to be one of the listed providers under OBGYN. And it was really important to me to be um, on this page because I wanted um, this entire community and area to understand that you, this this transgender community, has my full um, and unwavering support and commitment to helping these transgender patients, these gender expansive, these non-binary patients find a home that they can can come to the physician and feel comfortable that they're not going to be judged and they're going to receive some of the highest quality care um, in the nation. So we talked about this kind of as you arrived, you're getting settled in a little bit, um, that I was a little nervous preparing for this episode because it's something that I I think is incredibly important and I want people to learn more about it. And I feel, you know, very passionately that it's amazing that we have this um, program and that there are so many providers engaged. And I'm also very, very conscious of the fact that I am a cisgendered woman and it's not a, you know, I guess it's, I have no lived experience here. I may have the passion, but I don't have the lived experience. And, and I was thinking about that so much just while I was researching and writing questions. And I can imagine it's, it's more for you. So how can, how can doctors be aware and how have you tried to kind of keep yourself aware of um, that your medical expertise matters a lot? You're bringing so much important information to the table and there's a, a knowledge gap because it's not a lived experience. How do you find that balance, I guess? Well, I first want to applaud you for even inviting me here today to talk about this. So I think that is the first big barrier is just being aware that this knowledge gap exists and being curious about it. So number one, I applaud you and just being self-reflective enough to understand that. And you're right. I mean, we can be trained, right? We, we get trained through medical school and then residency, and then some of us go through fellowship, and we see many, many patients every single day. Um, and that medical knowledge is important, but it's most definitely not everything, just like you stated. And I think the most important things to keep in mind is humility, being open-minded, respecting your patients, and having a healthy curiosity, wanting to learn. And if, and just like you said, not being a transgender person can make it difficult for us to actually empathize with this population, right? We're not living every single day feeling like people are looking at us or being judged or, you know, are we dressed the right way for us to represent the way we're feeling? And so I think by... By us not being able to empathize completely, that's not necessarily the goal, right? The goal for us um, is more just creating space on being open-minded to how we can include these patients and feeling like they're humans right next to us. And I think the didactics that we hosted a couple weeks ago at UW was so powerful and rich for me personally. And just hearing these patients say, I am just like you. Like, don't be nervous around me. I'm just like you. And we're learning together. And um, and you're right in that it's not these transgender or non-binary patients' um, responsibility to educate us. But I think learning and growing together is a really powerful union and how to make this a better experience for every single person involved. Dr. King, thank you so much for sitting down with us. And thank you for taking time to kind of walk through the importance of this topic with me. Thanks again so much for inviting me and for taking the time to um, try to disseminate the power that we can have as providers in, in making these transgender patients feel welcomed in our offices. 
Thanks again to Kara King for not only sitting down with the Women's Health Cast, but for making sure physician education around transgender and gender nonconforming healthcare is a priority in our department. If you'd like to do a little additional reading, check out our show notes for links to the UW Health Gender Services Program, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care, and more. And from all of us at UW-OBGYN, happy Pride. I'm really excited for the next couple episodes of the Women's Health Cast, where we will learn all about birth control, what's available, how it works, and concerns and considerations for methods from the pill to the IUD, all from Dr. Eliza Bennett. Look for that two-part series in late June and early July. Women's Health Cast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's Health Cast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.